morning. My name is Tommy Allen. I'm the lead pastor at New Hope Presbyterian Church, and I would like to welcome you to our online teaching ministry. Uh, we are in the middle of a series um, entitled uh, The Bible. Every story whispers his name. I forget what number we're even on at this time, probably 12 or 13. And the story we'll be looking at this morning is from Exodus chapter 14. Before we do that, I thought I would do something a little bit different. Typically, when I lead this time. Uh, I start with a confession of sin and end with a profession of faith. And I thought this morning I would open with a prayer. And it's a prayer I found in an app called Common Prayer. And so if you'd like to follow along, you can find that in the description below. So let me pray for us. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Suffer me not to be separated from you. From the malicious enemy, defend me. In the hour of my death, call me. And bid me come to you, that with your saints I may praise you forever and ever. Amen. Let me continue with prayer. Father, I pray that as we gather today, uh, virtually as we gather together in home groups, as we... Uh, gather and talk about this sermon even later. I pray that you would just um, make it effective unto salvation for some, make it effective unto sanctification for others. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Before I jump into the text, also I'd remind you that we're looking at having our first sort of test worship service on October 11th at 4 p.m. We'll be installing the Reverend Samuel Weems to the uh, position of associate pastor. So if you can come out, uh, we'd love to see you then. After that, we'll see what happens. So this morning, uh, I'd like to begin the teaching time basically with a question. And the question is this. If you ever watch movies, and, and most of us do, um, and if you've seen the movie Die Hard, and you've seen the movie Sound of Music, what do the movies Die Hard and Sound of Music have in common? Should I give you some time? How about this? Let me make it a little easier. How about the movie Rambo and Toy Story 2? What do they have in common? Does anything just leap out at you? Okay. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what Die Hard and The Sound of Music have in common and what Rambo and Toy Story have in common and what all of those stories have in common is that they are all rescue stories. Every one of them. And in fact, rescue stories are so popular. They're among the top grossing films of all time. I looked up on IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, and just sort of searched by rescue stories. And there were 250 plus movies in the category of rescue. And the cool thing, you can narrow your search. And so I put in there rescue movies with surprise endings. And surprise endings, I assume, mean like they didn't think the person was going to get rescued at the end. Or it looked like all was lost and then the person finally got rescued. And there were over 100 of those. Now, why are there so many movies that are about being rescued or about rescue missions or, or rescuing someone from a, a dire situation? And I think the answer is actually pretty easy. I think it's because our hearts are wired for that story. 
Is there anyone who doesn't love a good rescue story? And is there anyone who doesn't rejoice when someone is rescued at the last minute when all hope is lost and, and the, the, the hero comes and rescues the damsel in distress or, or anything like that? And well, as we look at today's text, we're in the book of Exodus and Exodus chapter 14 and Exodus chapter 14, certainly in the Bible, but maybe it just in, in, in the, the history of stories is one of the greatest rescue stories of all time. In fact, if you remember last week, Samuel did a great job preaching about um, the Exodus, Israel's escape from bondage in Egypt. And he said in that time that the Exodus is the central story to the whole Old Testament. And he, he was correct about that, I believe. Um, if the Exodus is a central story in the Old Testament, then the, the crossing of the Red Sea by Israel is the biggest boast of the Old Testament. In other words, in the Old Testament, when a prophet or someone wants to talk about God's power and God's majesty and God's glory, oftentimes they will invoke this story of how God defeated Pharaoh and brought Israel through the Red Sea on dry land. 25 times that shows up, tells you how important it is. And so as we jump into this story today, as we enter into it, I'm going to do something a little different than I usually do. Um, typically, we're covering lots of chapters, and I'm sort of just trying to summarize and walk through the story and point out some things. I'm going to go through today's text in Exodus 14, some of chapter 13, and I'm going to point out six different lessons that we can learn from this text. There's so many good things. You, there are more than six lessons, by the way, that I identified, but I'm just going to point out six things that we could learn from the story of God delivering Israel through the waters of judgment in the Red Sea. So first lesson that we have here is that the Christian life, no matter who you are, begins with faith. Okay, let me say that again. The Christian life, no matter who you are, always begins with faith. So if you think back to the plagues, remember there were 10 plagues. And what's interesting is in the first nine plagues, the, only, the God differentiated between Israel and Egypt, right? So uh, Egypt will get boils, but not Israel. Or Egypt will get flies, but not Israel. Egypt will get gnats, but not Israel. That in the 10th plague, something happens that changes all that. The 10th plague... There is no differentiation between Egyptian and Israelite, with the exception of the blood of the lamb being put over the doorpost. In other words, it didn't matter if your name was Moskowitz or if your name was uh, Pharaoh. If you didn't have blood over your door, you didn't get saved. Or if you, if, if you didn't have blood over your, your door, you would get destroyed or your firstborn child would get destroyed. And so whether you were from Israel or whether you were Egyptian, if you wanted to be delivered from the judgment of God in the 10th plague, or if you wanted your firstborn to be delivered, you had to be saved by a substitute, right? By the blood of this lamb that was without blemish. And they put it over the door. And I do think some Egyptians probably did that as well. If you look at chapter 12, verse 37, 38, it says that when Israel left, when Pharaoh, when they when they did the Exodus, when they when they scrammed, it said that Israel left and a mixed multitude went with them. 
and the mixed multitude, most people think, and it seems pretty just clear on the face of it, that there were other peoples that went with them. Maybe some Egyptians heard Israel talking and put blood over their door, something, or maybe it was servants, who knows, but there was a mixed multitude who had put their faith in the blood of the lamb over the door. And when the exodus happened, when they were released from bondage, they left. Now, the same is true for us as Christians, right? To become a Christian, it's not about good works and it's not about uh, being a good person. I mean, I hear that pe people say that all the time. Whenever someone says, oh, I'm not a very good Christian, what I hear them say is I'm not really a Christian at all because I don't know what that means. You see, you're either a Christian or you're not a Christian because what it means to become a Christian is to trust by faith that God has taken away your sins by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. Remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so if you're going to be a Christian, the Christian life always starts by faith. It's not something that you begin to work on and hopefully you arrive. You either put the blood of the Lamb over your door or you don't. You either trust in the finished work of Jesus or you don't. So that's lesson number one we learn from this, that in the 10th plague, you had to have faith in the blood of the lamb over your door, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Egyptian. There was no distinction except for those who had put their faith in a substitute. So that leads to the second lesson. What's the second lesson? And the second lesson is this, is sometimes God sends us down a different path to spare us from an unwinnable fight. Or we put it different, sometimes God sends us down a difficult path to spare us from an unwinnable fight. Where am I getting that? In verse 17 of chapter 13 says this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you should carry my bones up from here with you. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped to eat them on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So what's happening here? So Israel has has left. Now the, the a straight line, from Egypt to Canaan is about 250 miles. The problem is between Egypt and Canaan in that straight line, that's where the Philistines live. It's called the Via de Mar, it's right on the water, on the Mediterranean. And so God does not want to send Israel along that path because the, that's an unwinnable fight for them. He's afraid that if they go that way, the Philistines will intimidate them or the Philistines will beat them and they'll just turn head back to Egypt, back into bondage. And so God, who sees the whole picture, he sends them a different way. It's, it would, imagine like this, imagine that you lived in Huntsville, Alabama, and you had to go to Savannah, Georgia, right? You would just drive straight from Alabama across Georgia to Savannah. And yet what Israel does in effect is imagine going from Huntsville down to maybe Gainesville, Florida, and then up, right? In other, in other words, they do this roundabout way so they don't have to deal with the Philistines. And the path that they get taken on 
on the face of it looks much more difficult because they are taken into sort of the wilderness and they're taken frankly to the edge of a of a the red sea that doesn't seem like god's taking care of them and yet God is doing a hard thing, a difficult thing for them and in them in order to spare them from something they, they couldn't win. Now, do you imagine God ever does that in our lives? Right? Do you imagine that God ever takes us down a difficult path to spare us from something uh, more dangerous or something that, that is even worse? And I think about that all the time in the context of this global pandemic we're in now. I mean, imagine... like. It, from God's perspective, that maybe he sent this global pandemic, COVID, which relatively speaking by pandemic standards is pretty mild. Um, maybe he sent this pandemic to get us ready for something that's even worse, God forbid, but maybe that's it. Maybe maybe someday we'll look back and say, whew, I'm so glad that COVID hit because if COVID didn't hit, we wouldn't have been ready in this area, this area, this area, this area. We can't tell in real time what God is doing. And so what that means is we have to have faith that he's working all things together for his glory and our good. That's a theme that keeps coming up and up, up over and over in these stories. And so other things, maybe God is just trying to get the world's attention as far as um, overreach of government, right? That At least that feels that way sometimes. And by the way, spoiler alert, if you read the book of Revelation, that's one of the big problems is that government begins to overreach and oppress people. Maybe God wants people to be awake to that. I don't know. I don't know any reason why he's doing it. But I do know that if you look at the Bible over and over again, God sends his people down difficult paths in order to help them avoid something worse. So imagine the things that you're going through right now. Um, is it possible that God is guarding you from something worse than that? Or God is, is doing that so you're not discouraged by something else? That's what he did for, for Israel here. And then he led them. He led them by pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And a little sub-lesson here, by the way, is that wherever the pillar of fire went and the pillar of the clouds, you had to, you had to follow it. In other words, oftentimes you, when people feel like real low in their faith and someone will say, well, well, God didn't move. You move. God's in the same place. Not really. Sometimes God moves. At least he did with Israel. And when God moves, they were called to follow him. That leads to the third lesson, that God is the ultimate multitasker. Okay, lesson number three, God is the ultimate multitasker. Listen to what it says in chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pehiroth, <laughs> between Migdal and the sea, in front of Balazaphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea for Pharaoh will say to the people of the people of Israel they are wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and all the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord and they did so so what do I mean when I say that God is the ultimate multitasker is that God is doing something in the life and lives of Israel, and he is doing something in the life and life of Pharaoh and the Egyptians all through the same event. In other words, the same sequence of events is affecting Israel one way and it's affecting Pharaoh the other way, but God is actually behind both of them at the same time. 
So in other words, God says, I don't want to take the Israelites by the via de mar because the Philistines are there. So I'm going to take them in front of the Red Sea. So they're going to be, feel like they are trapped between the, the Pharaoh and the wilderness and the Red Sea. And I'm going to use that to lure Pharaoh in because he's going to see Israel trapped between the sea and the wilderness. And he's just going to think that's easy pickings. And when he comes in, I'm going to get and I will show my glory. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. So God's plan is both work, working in Israel's life and in Pharaoh's life in order to accomplish his ultimate purpose, which is salvation and judgment. Now, for our case, um, do you imagine that God ever does that in our life? Or maybe a different way to look at it is think, it's easy for us to be very self-centered and think, you know, God working all things together for my good, right? For those who call according to his purposes and I'm that person. Well, God's not only working all things together for my good, but he's working things together for that person's good and that person's good and that person's good and that person's good. And sometimes what works is for their good is difficult for me and vice versa. In other words, you've heard me say this before that we make our plans and we get upset when our plans are broken, but God has plans too. And God's plans uh, take into account every single possible variable and ours take in almost none, relatively speaking, to, to all the things that could happen. So keep that in mind. So God is the ultimate multitasker. In verse five, he says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people have fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? <laughs> we let Israel go from serving us. So he made, he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and all of his horsemen and his army. And he overtook them and camped at the sea by Pehiroth in front of Baal Zephon. So Pharaoh sees that Israel has gone and it hits him. They're gone. <laughs> Skirt. Um, and so he, they decide that they are going to, he changes his mind and they decide to, to go and pursue Israel. And Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world. He has the most high-tech army in the world. Whenever you see chariots or iron chariots in the Old Testament, that is like insurmountable odds. Now, God's always beating things with iron chariots, but that's sort of the point. In the ancient Near East, if you had iron chariots, you, just weren't, you couldn't be defeated. And so all of these chariots come after Israel. 600 chariots plus all the lower model, low-end chariots all of Pharaoh's horses, all of his army, and they come and they see that Israel is trapped by the sea. And Pharaoh's probably like, yeah, baby. Now, what does that lead to? The next lesson, right? And the next lesson is lesson number four. So the first lesson is um, the Christian life starts by faith. The second lesson is sometimes God sends us down a difficult path to, to preserve us from an unwinnable fight. Lesson three, God's the ultimate taskmaster. And lesson four, and this one's going to hurt a little bit. I'm going to be honest with you. Lesson number four, the answer to legitimate fears is not complaining, but rather reliance on the promises of God. Let me say that again. The answer to legitimate fears is not complaining, but rather reliance on the promises of God. Look at verse 10. 
It says, when Israel drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Okay. So you're in Israel, you've been a slave um, and you've escaped and you think everything is great. And then you look up and you see the full might of Pharaoh's army bearing down upon you. How would you feel? Legitimately afraid, I would think. And it says that they feared greatly. And then it says also, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Also legitimate. They have fears. They cry out to the Lord. And then in very short order, they begin to complain. Listen to what they say, verse 11. And they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The complaining here is interesting to me on a number of levels. One, think about by the time that they got the complaints reached Moses' ears, people had already been complaining to their wife and to their husband. Their kids had heard them complaining. They'd already been complaining with their neighbors, maybe the guy that they work with. So probably there's this huge spirit of complaining until finally someone had the chutzpah to go to Moses and complain to him. And what they complained about was basically that, that we shouldn't have left. In other words, that they, they groaned for 400 years. If you remember the whole story, they groaned for 400 years in slavery and in bondage. God heard their groaning and promised them that he would deliver them out of their bondage. He does that. And the first trouble they come to, they want to go back or at least they complain and they Monday morning quarterback and say, you know, we told you before this wasn't going to work. And we told you that we didn't want to leave Egypt. And at least in Egypt, you know, we'd have had onions to eat. Let us, we could have just served the Egyptians and it'd be better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Blah, 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 blah. Right. Here's what complaining shows. Complaining here is evidence of their unbelief. As simple as that. God promised he would deliver them. He did deliver. He delivered them from Egypt. And now he had to finish the job. And every time they complained, it was just evidence of unbelief in their heart. Now, what do you think I'm going to say about us? When you and I complain, what is that also evidence of? It's evidence of unbelief in our heart. It's evidence that we really don't believe the promises of God. It's evidence that we've sort of given up on trusting him. And instead, we think that by complaining, something is going to get better. Let me ask you this. In this text, does their complaining help at all? Does it help anything move forward? Does it help solve anything? It doesn't do anything except reveal the unbelieving state of their heart. And the same thing is true of you and me. When was the last time your complaining helped anything? And I don't mean complaining in a restaurant because your steak was overcooked or something like that. I mean complaining about things in life. I mean, think about maybe, maybe you feel like um, you're trapped in life. Maybe, you're, maybe you feel like you're trapped 
between Joe Biden and the Red Sea of of socialism and wokeness and anarchy and things like that. Or maybe you feel like you're trapped politically between the red between Donald Trump um, the and, and the Red Sea of of his failure to be nice or whatever it is that you're just trapped. And so how do you deal with that? Well, I know I'm just going to complain about that night and day to my wife. I'm going to complain about it to my friends. I'm going to complain about it on Facebook. I'm going to complain about it on Instagram. And you know what? I might even make a YouTube channel someday to complain about it. What does that help? It doesn't help anything. It definitely didn't help poor Moses. Moses is just trying to lead these people and they, he, he gets the brunt of it. He gets the brunt of it from Israel. He gets the brunt of it from God. What is the remedy to Israel's complaining? And what is the remedy to our complaining? It's to be reminded of the promises of God. And that's what Moses does. Verse 13, he, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Zip it, Moses says. He says, "Be stand, fear not, stand firm. You're going to see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. In other words, is this a time in their life when instead of complaining, do they need to be quiet and rely on the promises of God? The answer, it seems here is yes. And so the same question I would ask you, and it's the same question I ask my, myself as I deal with COVID and I deal with restrictions and I deal with all the way life has changed. Is it a time for me to complain? And is that helpful at all? Or is it a time for me to remind myself and rely upon the promises of God? The right answer is relying on the promises of God. Whether we pull that off all the time is another story altogether. So on one hand, um, this lesson basically says, stop complaining and rely on the, provident, pr the promises of God. The next lesson is actually a little bit different. So this, this lesson is sort of like sometimes you just got to be quiet and wait for God to fight your battle for you. What's the next lesson? Well, the next lesson basically says this, that there's a time for praying and there's times for action. Right? That's lesson five. Lesson five, there, there's a time for praying and crying out and there is a time for action. Listen to what verse 15 says. The Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his house and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So in other words, God says, Okay, now, right now is not the time for praying. Now is the time for moving. You see, God utilizes means in the plans that he has for us. We don't, you, you know, if, if, for example, if you want a job and you just sit in your house all day long praying, saying, Lord, please give me a job. Please give me a job. Please give me a job. At some point, I hope someone comes and says, you know, you, he might give you a job 
if you fill out some applications and you network and you do some interviews. It reminds me, it's the oldest story in the book, but remember the story of the man who's standing on his roof in the middle of a flood and a boat comes by and says, um, get in the boat, we'll save you. And the man says, I'm waiting on the Lord, he's gonna save me. And the, the time goes on and water gets up around his waist and another boat comes by and says, get in our boat, we'll save you. And he says, I'm just waiting on the Lord, he's gonna save me. And same thing, water up to his neck, another boat comes by and says, get in the boat, we'll save you. And he says, I'm waiting on the Lord. Well, he drowns. And when he gets stands before the Lord, he says, why didn't you save me? And God looks at him, I imagine, rolls his eyes and says, dude, I sent three boats to save you. That you see, sometimes action is required of us um, to, to actually facilitate and, and to, to, to be a part of what God is doing. And so he tells Moses, right now, it's, it's not time for praying anymore. Now it's time for acting. So what I want you to do is I want you to lift up that staff of yours and stretch it out over the sea and it will divide, and divide it that the people may go through on dry ground. And that leads to lesson six. So what is lesson six? Lesson six is this, is that salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin and God is glorified in both. Okay, ultimately the, the destiny of every human being is either salvation or judgment. But those two things are two sides of the same coin, right? And that's what we see here in this story. So in verse 19, it says that God went both ahead of them in front of the cloud to go through the sea in front of them, but also he went behind them and guarded them from Egypt. So God's got their front and he's got their back. And in verse 21, it says, Then Moses stretched his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and to their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Okay, so the, the strong east wind comes and the, the sea becomes like a wall of water on either side of Israel. Now, a lot of people say, oh, it was really just a reed sea and it was just really shallow water and it really didn't happen. Like, that's that you might think that, but that's not what this says. This said it was at least deep enough so that there formed walls of water that they had to walk through. And also Pharaoh and his army came in, all of them. They were all into this. And imagine they get in the middle. I mean, it's almost like Wile E. Coyote. They're in the middle of this sea with the with the the water being held up as if they were walls. And then suddenly they look up and see the water starts dribbling down a little bit more. It says in verse 24, in the morning, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights against, fights for them against the Egyptians. We're not gonna look at it by the way, but in chapter 15, remember how God was afraid that Israel was gonna to be too afraid of the Philistines. Well, because of this event and because of the way God judges Egypt, the nations around Egypt, like the Philistines, they now fear Israel. And Egypt even now fears Israel, not because they're so big and great, but because they know that Yahweh fights for them. And so verse 26, it says that the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, 
upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the host, all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. Verse 30, the Lord saved Israel on that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. So do you see how in the same event, how salvation for Israel and judgment for Egypt were two sides of the same coin that the you were in that event you were either going to be judged or you were going to be saved there wasn't a little bit saved and there wasn't a little bit judged it says not one person of israel died now it never talks about the quality of their faith i imagine some in israel were like i don't know about this then others were like come on let's go but either way whether they had a lot of faith or whether they had a little bit of faith Walking through those waters of judgment on dry land was enough to save them. And no matter how great and no matter how big and no matter how righteous or, or good or, or, or noble Pharaoh and his army were, they were judged. One event did both things. And it's the same thing with the cross of Christ, right? At the cross of Christ, what you see is two things happening at the same time. On one hand, you see judgment being borne out. Of, on the, the, the sins of Christ's people. On the other hand, um, you see salvation being won for Christ's people. It's interesting because in the, the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, he talks about this event, this crossing of the Red Sea. And he says, in the crossing of the Red Sea, the Israelites were baptized into Moses. And I think what he means by that is they followed their mediator through the waters of judgment um, to salvation on the other side. And that's the same thing that happens with Christians in our baptism, right? It, it, when you become a Christian, our baptism, we are baptized into Jesus. And what that means is, is we have put our faith in the one, in this mediator who leads us through the waters of judgment. Now he bore the waters of judgment on our behalf, but he rose again from them and we rise again with him. In other words, if you are, are not a Christian, you can be rescued from your sins by putting your faith in the one who has overcome the waters of judgment. And if you are a Christian, uh, you have been taken through judgment. You have been delivered by following this mediator, Jesus, by trusting in him. That now is your story. That, that's the narrative that defines your life. Let me close with this. Judy and I have have started to watch a show. It's on Disney Plus now called Once Upon a Time. And it's pretty amazing, I think, just the, in concept, because basically the premise behind the show Once Upon a Time is this, is that all the storybook characters that we know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and, and Peter Pan and Captain Hook and, and all those stories, Pinocchio, things that we know from our childhood, those stories are actually real. And those characters live in an actual place, but because of the curse of an evil queen, they have forgotten who they are. 
and she transports them to, to a small town in Maine. And so this whole small town in Maine is full of storybook characters, grand storybook characters who have no idea who they are. They've, they've whispers and, and slight memories of who they are and how they're ultimately saved and how they're ultimately delivered is by a little boy who starts reading a book. And in this book, their stories are in there. The true story of who they are is in the book. And also, guess what? Not only is it the true story of who they are in the book, but there's also the story of a savior who will come and break the curse that is over them. Does that sound familiar? It should, that's our story. Our story is the fact that, that we are under a curse in and of ourselves and we don't even know the true story about ourselves until we have been delivered by the one who can break the curse. That is Jesus. Think about that. Let me pray. Father, I do pray now that you would just um, come and you would apply these truths to our hearts. I pray that um, we would not only see ourselves as being delivered from our bondage, being delivered from our sins, but we would also have faith to believe that God is going to continue to deliver us until the very end. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. At this point, typically, if we were in a worship service, I would um, ask everyone to stand and we would sing the doxology together and then we would take an offertory. And so I'd give you the opportunity now. You can find the information either in the description or in the comments um, if you're interested in giving to the ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church. Um, we would appreciate it. Those of you who have been giving and continue to give, thank you so much for that. So how I would like to end today is by reading a profession of faith. And the profession of faith I have today is from Heidelberg Catechism, question number 61. And the question asked is this, why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Answer, not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, it is because only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness and holiness make me righteous before God because I can accept this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than through faith. Think about that. Let me send you from this place with this benediction, saying the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty, victorious warrior. The Lord your God will quiet you with his love, and the Lord your God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. Go in his peace. Amen and amen.